Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. My name is Leonore Lopes, and I'm a volunteer pastor here at First Alliance Church. And today it is a great honor for me and a great privilege to be able to speak to you through God's word. Before I begin, I would just like to personally thank the tech crew. They're here every Sunday before any of us arrive, and they solve all kinds of problems before the service begins, even if it's 20 minutes before the service began, just like we had today. They're solving our tech problems, and they were here right throughout uh, COVID when the sanctuary was empty. So thank you so much. We don't see you. You're there behind, but we thank you. I'd also like to take a second just to ask the Holy Spirit to be present with us. So if you just don't mind bowing your head and I will just pray. Holy Spirit, God and Jesus, we thank you that you are here and we pray that you would descend upon us now and you would open up this communication process, that you would be with the words that come out of my mouth and you would be with the ears that hear, that everything that you want to be done and accomplished through this time will be done. Amen. So Christmas is a very captivating time. Our senses are dazzled by the sights and the sounds and the smells of Christmas. And also the taste of Christmas. There's just so much good food around Christmas time. You know those things that come out only at Christmas time? Like for example, the eggnog and the candy cane ice cream and the rum cake and whatever it is that you enjoy that comes out at Christmas time. But the way we celebrate Christmas changes over time. The foods we eat, the traditions we, we participate in, and the way we decorate. It gets more elaborate every year. It seems to start earlier every single year. Ret- retailers want us to go bigger, better, make more of a statement. We have more smart jingles. Every year there's new jingles. I think this year is the best Tims of the year. Everybody wants to get in on that sort of thing. Take, for example, the Christmas tree. It has evolved throughout time. So in 1950s, this is what a Christmas tree may have looked like. And then we move on to the 60s. Notice a little bit of change. We move into the 70s. I've skipped the 80s and 90s simply because we had tech problems, but that's okay. We'll jump over to 210. You see how it's getting more elaborate? It's getting bigger. And then you get into the 2020s. Today, our Christmas trees are not just a Christmas tree in a house. We have multiple trees in people's homes. We have designer trees. We have colored-themed trees. We have indoor trees, outdoor trees. We have white trees. We have uh, trees that are already lighted up for us. We don't have to put the strings of lights through them. And we even have upside-down trees. You know, the ones that go like this, you have more room for the presents? We have. But in the midst of this, we look at the way we celebrate our cultural Christmas and we look at the Christmas story. That Christmas story has not changed for over 2,000 years. It hasn't gotten bigger, hasn't gotten bolder. It's the same story. And we talk about this story, we say it's God's love story. But for some of you, you've experienced this love and you value the time to celebrate God's gift. For others who may be unfamiliar with this story, it may sound strange to you. 
After all, we talk about a virgin conception. Uh, we talk about angels uh, appearing to some shepherds. This sounds very strange. Yet for others, you may be so familiar with it that we tune it out and we pay little attention to it. It doesn't connect with our everyday life. We connect much more and much more readily with the present-day celebration of Christmas. And some of you may think that these words of love that we talk about Christmas being love mean very little. You can say to you, yeah, okay, God loves me, but I'm still hurting. Or my parents are going through a terrible divorce. Or I don't know how I'm going to meet my bills. I can't get a job. I'm terribly lonely. I can't find a purpose in life. And I don't think I matter to anyone. What good is this love? As long as our understanding of God's love, as revealed in a story, remains locked in a story, I would have to agree with you that the story will not be able to compete with the pre present-day practice of celebration. But what if we understood this love for us personally? When we feel loved, we tend to be more confident, we tend to be more resilient, we tend to be more well-adjusted. How would this love change our lives? Let me tell you a story, simply because I like telling stories, and right now I have the mic, so I can. When you move into a predominantly Anglo-Saxon neighborhood, and you show up on your kindergarten doorstep with a name like Leonor, flags go up, trumpets are sounding, big, big neon sign, you don't belong to the dominant culture. You belong to the immigrant subculture. And that was my experience. Showing up in kindergarten with my name was more like Lenore, No, not Lenore. Eleanor, not Eleanor either. Leone, Lorna, and even Leonard. None of these. <laughs> Although I loved kindergarten, and I really did, I think the tricycles were my favorite, right from a young age, I recognized quite quickly that I was not part of the dominant culture in my school. I was the immigrant subculture that was inferior. Now, don't get me wrong. Everyone treated me very well, and I really was uh, liking school, but in the inner core of who I was, I knew I did not belong there. I went through kindergarten, absolutely loved it, entered grade one. Miss Forster, oh, loved that teacher. Miss Forster had a habit of sitting with us every morning and reading to us. She would sit on a little chair, and she would ask us to sit on the floor, cross-legged, of course, don't touch anybody else, keep all body parts to yourself, and listen to the story. So one day, she decides to read us this beautiful story. And I sat there with my legs crossed, not touching anybody, listening intently. And then she starts. And the hero of the story was a princess called Leonore. <laughs> my six-year-old eyes must have been wide as saucers. I was astounded. How could that possibly be? And I guarantee you, after spending uh, my entire adult life in education, I highly, highly doubt that there was a book in that library with a princess named Leonore. <laughs> you get what the teacher was doing. She was working hard to make me feel included. And so she reads this story about this hero. And to tell you the truth, to this day, I could not remember a single thing about that story. But I do remember that significant moment when she was staring at me because she was watching for my reaction, and our eyes connected, and she smiled at me, and she had that smile of approving that you belong here. That was so significant for me that I remember it to this day. 
And I feel that as we study the Christmas story, and as we focus on through this Advent season, especially today we're focusing on the God who is love, we need to make a connection with that love personally. The teacher touched the core of my being, and we need to experience God's love at the core of my being in a very relevant way in our lives. It's a transformational story of God's love, and that love needs to touch us at the core of who we are in the midst of modern life. Otherwise, it's just print on paper. So many of us live without that connection to this love. Some of us have never experienced or known this love, and we feel detached in our lives. Things may be going well, but we may feel like detached, and we may feel like something's missing. Some of us are content that we are knowing about Jesus, but that knowledge is out there somewhere, and it's not really touching us. Some of us have heard the story so many times that you don't see how it connects to your reality, so you just ignore it. Maybe sometimes you have experienced a little bit of this love at times, but your busy life has moved you away and you've kind of forgotten about it. Or maybe you're in a, in a Christian setting at times, you felt the warmth of God's love, but you've doubted that it was real and you've moved on. So whether it's for the first time or whether you're revisiting the story for the umpteenth time, let's look at the message of love that speaks louder to us than the noise of the Christmas experience around us. We're going to look at two Bible verses today. We're going to look at one that talks more about theology, and then we're going to talk about one that really brings this love down to a practical level. And the first verse I'm going to begin with is something that is probably the most well-memorized verse in Christian societies. And if you know it, say it with me, and then I'll put it on the screen afterwards. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I really like the way that Eugene Peterson writes it in his message. This is how much God loved the world. Just looking at my screen there, that's why I'm delaying, I'm sorry about that. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one need to be destroyed by believing in him. Anyone can have a whole and a lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in a one-of-a-kind son of God who introduced us to him. The context of this verse is a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And if you know anything about Pharisees, you'll know that he was a very well-educated person. Because in those days, education was not, or is not what it was like, sorry, it was not like what it is today, okay? So in those days, people would just receive the rudimentary basic education. And they would probably be learning until they were about 12 years old, maybe 13, and then that would sit for education. From then on, you would start learning and participating in what you would be doing as an adult. So for a son, he may learn his father's trade, for a daughter, she would be learning how to um, 
keep a home, and she would be married off very quickly. However, there was a smaller number of people that if they had the aptitude, they could go on in their studies. And most of their studies revolved around memorizing their scriptures, the holy scriptures that they had. So they would stay in school for a little longer, and they would memorize and memorize and memorize, and they would know those scriptures. And then they would move off and start living their adult lives. But there was even a smaller number of people who really had the aptitude and the determination. They could go on, and they would be uh, under the care of a rabbi, and they would live with that rabbi, and they would follow that rabbi, and they would learn, and they would learn, and they would learn, and they would memorize the entire scriptures. Nicodemus was one of these, so he knew about the prophecies of the Messiah coming. He was anticipating the Messiah. Coming, but at this time, when Jesus actually arrives on the scene, he knows what his colleagues are saying. His colleagues despise Jesus. He knows that he's hearing that, but for himself and his own heart, he's troubled. He can't understand how the theology that he has learned is coming face to face with Jesus, who seems so controversial, who seems so upside down, who seems to be taking that the law that they've learned and memorized it and flipping it upside down and accusing them of so many things. But Nicodemus does not turn away. He comes because he was really, really struggling with this, and he comes to ask Jesus. And he's having difficulty understanding the theory and the knowledge to the practice that he experiences. So God, through this verse, is explaining to him basically the love story of God. And in a quick, quick summary, God created a beautiful world. He created a world in which humanity was the pinnacle of His creation. And he gave the world to humans and said, "Hey, this is yours. You have dominion over it, and I want to be in communion with you." And they they related with each other beautifully. There was perfect oneness. It was a world without evil. But God, through His love, gave humanity free choice, and He respected our autonomy. So, it didn't take very long before humans said, "Okay, God, no thanks. We've got this. It's our world. We've got it." And so we went on, and we rejected God. At that moment in time, two things happened: the connection between us and God is broken, and evil enters the world. So God is a holy God; He does not coexist with evil. So He cannot relate to us as He did before. Something has to happen for that relationship to be restored. Someone has to pay the price, and that's what Jesus did. In coming to this earth, he paid that price so we could have that relationship again. Also, the world is now broken. The world has rejected God, and God knows that if He completely turns His back on us, it will not take us very long to destroy ourselves. As history has tested, we do not have a very good track record of taking care of each other as humans. We destroy each other and we destroy our world. So God is still active in the world. As a whole, the world has rejected, but He's calling us as individuals, and saying, "Here, it's your choice. Do you want to come and be redeemed to that state where we were before, where we could have that oneness, where I can redeem you, and I'm redeeming creation as well?" That's what God is telling Nicodemus through this verse. He's having this conversation with him, and God comes into this world as a human being so that we can understand Him better, because God is greater. Than our finite minds can comprehend, so he comes as a human, so we can understand. And I just want to give you a little insight of what this might, like an iota of what this might have been for God. 
Imagine yourselves now, at your age, with all that you know, whether you're a senior adult, a middle-aged adult, a young adult, a teenager, and even a, a child, 9, 10, 12, 7. Imagine everything that you know, everything that you have, all the autonomy you gained, all the independence you have, all of a sudden you're shrunk into a body of a preschooler, and you attend preschool, and you are their size, and you have to follow everything they do, but yet in your head you know everything else because you're so much older. You have to hold a, a rope when you go for a walk. You have to go to the washroom as a group. You're told when to have a nap. You're told what to eat. And if you don't want to do something, someone picks you up and forces you and takes you to where you don't want to go. Okay? Jesus and God in, in, in his deity was in heaven, in, in, in all creation. I mean, he's got so much power and he reduces himself to a human so that we can relate to him. That is God's love story. But even then, even then, it could still remain something that we know in our heads, but we don't experience in our bodies. So now we turn to our second verse where we see this beautiful love coming down to a person and we can see God's tender care for a person when he's hurting. Uh, so we will meet, read Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He, he came... I'm so sorry, I'm really having trouble here reading that screen. He came to help to put the world... Let's just... J Joseph was in a really, really bad state. He was, he was engaged, basically. And he had been told the story. Mary had told him that she was pregnant. And she had told him how. But of course, he wasn't there. All he knew, 100% sure, was that he was not that father of that child. So as I prepared for this message, I put it out there to quite a few people just to get a sense of what people might feel like. The question, what emotions would you feel if you found out that your fiancé was unfaithful to you or cheated on you, and as a result of that, a child has been created? So I put it out there, and these are some of the answers I got back. Absolute rage, despair, overwhelming sadness, confused, hurt, disbelief, distraught, betrayed, shock, bitter, hopeless. Not a single positive emotion. My guess is this is probably one of Joseph's lowest points in his life. He was probably anticipating engagement, he was probably quite happy, and then he finds this out. God saw his predicament, and God attended to his desperation. So he appears in a dream to Joseph. He speaks to Joseph in a way that Joseph understands. And the first thing he did was he called him by name, Joseph. You see, if you're in a room with a thousand people that have your name, and God calls you, you know he's talking to you. He's not talking to the person beside you or the person in front of you. When we hear God's tender voice speaking to us, we do know, we can feel it. 
And this is what God is doing right now to Joseph. He's not treating him like a number. He's treating him very personally, speaking to him, to him right now in this moment in his great need. The second thing that the angel tells Joseph is he reminds him of who he is. He calls him Joseph, son of David. In actuality, Joseph's father was not named David. He was named Jacob. But he, remo- he calls him son of David because he's reminding him of who he is. Joseph was a righteous man. He was faithful. He knew the law. He knew that he belonged to the line of David, which was the line in which the Messiah would come. So even that, as, as the angel reminds Joseph, Joseph's hopes may be rising because he's putting two and two together. What Mary said may be right, because I am of the line of David. I am who God says I am. Some of us are followers of Jesus, and we don't live as though we're children of the king. We have no conception of what that is. Sometimes we live like we're beggars. God is giving us so much, and we live with so little, because we don't and we can't comprehend what he's giving to us. So in this moment, God is telling Joseph, you are of the line of David. And the next thing that the angel says to Joseph is, fear not. Oh man, do we ever need to hear that sometimes in our lives. Just take a few seconds and try to remember all the things you worried about in 2021. All the fears you have had in 2021. And sometimes those fears are so immense that if people try to come in and help us and encourage us, it doesn't help because it's not touching the core of who we are. Okay? Sometimes all we need is God to come in and touch the core of who we are and say, fear not. And that's what um, God was saying to Joseph, fear not. And then God proceeds to explain what's going on here. And he tells him the whole story, that the child was actually conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that he are to name him Jesus. In those days, fathers had absolute rule. So a father gets to name the child. So the angel is telling Joseph, you will name him Jesus. So in a sense, God is saying to Joseph, Joseph, right now it appears that Mary is the main character in the story and you have the supporting role. But Joseph, you have an important part as well. You will be the adoptive father of this child. Your role is important as well. Okay? So he's really giving him now a purpose. He's addressing his fears, he's telling him who he is, and now he's giving him a purpose and a goal and something to look forward to. So could you imagine when Joseph wakes up? He goes to sleep, in utter desperation, and he wakes up a different person. Outwardly, nothing has changed. The gossip is still going around the village. People are still looking down at him, saying, what have you done? Okay. But inside, he's a totally different person. The burden that was sitting on his shoulders has been relieved, has been lifted, and he can live a different life. And God is wanting to do that to us today with us. He wants to shower us and envelop us with his tender love. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. So the question now remains is, how do we receive him? It seems that some of us treat uh, treat different types of people when they come to our house in different ways. And I will go through that and show you an analogy of how sometimes we relate to Jesus that way. You know how sometimes when someone knocks at your door, or maybe if you live in an apartment, they buzz you, and either you see them or you hear them, and they've got the lanyard around their uh, uh, necks, they've got a, a clipboard in their hands, you don't even want to answer the door. 
They're either going to try to sell you something, or you think it's a scam. So if you do open the door, you get rid of them very quickly. Okay? So they don't even get to come inside. And that's the way some of us react to Jesus. You're out there. Maybe I've heard about you. Uh, maybe I've been hurt by Christians, and I just want to keep you out there. So remember, God respects our autonomy, so he stays. There are certain type of people who we allow into our homes, but they don't get past the front entrance of our homes. Maybe you've sold something on Kijiji or whatever, and they've come to pick it up. So they walk into the front door, you do the exchange, and off they go. They've come in, but they're just at the entrance of the door. They don't go anywhere else, so they can't affect any other part of your house. And for some of us, that's the way we treat Jesus. We either have a mental assent about who he is, maybe we've grown up in church, and we kind of know who he is, but we kind of leave him at the front door, and we move on. So if he's at our front door, and we're upstairs in our bedroom, and we're crying ourselves to sleep because something is going on in our lives, he's down at the front door thinking to himself, hey, child, I could be with you right now. I could be holding your hand. I could be comforting you, but you want me to stay here, so I stay here. For some of us, for some people who come to our homes, we allow them in. Maybe we're hosting a party for our colleagues or whatever, but those people are only permitted to stay in our living areas. So they may come into our kitchen, our dining room, our living room, maybe the guest bathroom, but that's it. And they come in when you've prepared the whole house. Everything is clean, everything is where it belongs, everything is perfect, okay? It's a very formal relationship. You could be having a great time with those people, but truly, it's very formal and distant. And that's the way we treat Jesus as well. Again, he respects our autonomy. If we're not going to let him in, he's not going to come in. And then there are the type of people who come into our home and they can go anywhere they want to. They can go into our bedrooms, our bathrooms, they can open up our junk drawers. And I believe everybody has a junk door. Either that or a junk room. You've got it. We all have them in, in our homes. And you know what? Jesus already knows about the junk that's in there. He knows about the junk that's in our lives. And he's not coming to condemn about us about that junk, he's coming to save us, okay? The question is then, how do we let him into our lives? How will you receive this love? Maybe for you, it's a, it's a story that sounds foreign and strange. Maybe for you, it's you've been there, done that, you've grown up hearing God, but you feel God does not fit into your reality. Maybe you've been hurt by Christians and you've turned away from God, thinking that God is like those Christians. Maybe you feel content and happy in life without God, not realizing you are living in a fishbowl when God is wanting to give you the ocean. Maybe you have experienced God's love, but he wants you to go deeper and he wants you to experience more. Maybe at this Christmas season, God is saying to you, come, come to my banqueting table. You're my guest of honor. And when we hear that sometimes, it's a little bit difficult to accept. We're more accustomed to giving than to receiving. For the one who gives has more power than the one who receives. As well, if we really want to receive love, we have to be willing to be vulnerable. You know the old Hallmark Christmas stories that come out this time of year? The, the typical plot, the, the person who doesn't want to be vulnerable or has some fears resists the person who's trying to love, and finally that gets broken down, and they fall in love, and they, they, they get, live happily ever after. But it's true. If we want to receive love, 
we have to be willing to be vulnerable. So we have to be willing to be vulnerable with Jesus. We have to be willing to give up some of the control. And then that love can flood in. And then we don't need to live with fear controlling our lives. And then when we're hurting, he can come and speak to us and give us that comfort. So you see, the Christmas story does not need to compete with the ever extravagant uh, stories of Christmas, of cultural Christmas. It doesn't need to. Because quite frankly, no matter how extravagant Christmas becomes, January eventually rolls around. The Christmas tree gets put down and put away or thrown out if it's a real one. The decorations are packed. The food has been eaten. All the leftovers are gone. The bills start to come in and you think, oh my, I spent a lot this Christmas. Christmas is finished. But Jesus' love, knocking at the door of our heart, is still there. January, February, March, it's still there. If you have a crisis at the beginning of April, he's there for you. If uh, in May you have something that's overjoying in your life, he's rejoicing with you. So that's why the Christmas story does not need to compete with the cultural Christmas we experience today, for it is far, far greater. The love of God is far, far greater, and he wants to give us that love. He wants us to experience that. And my heart cry, my prayer for all of us is that this Christmas we would hear God's loving call to us personally and intimately. My child, Sarah. My child, Frank. My child, Kumar. My child, put your name in there. I love you. Don't be afraid. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love towards us. I do pray, Lord God, that you'd give us the ears to hear those words and to respond to them. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.